you laughed. These were two devastating words to hear, and they hurt because they were true. They were shaming because they were an accurate diagnosis of how culpable and thoughtless I could be. You laughed. It happened about 30 years ago. I was a student at the University of Akron, and I and my bunch would sit at tables upstairs at the Gardner Student Center eating lunch, playing cards, at the time our big game was spades, and talking too much. One particular time it was just the guys, and they started telling the story about a female friend who would often sit with us at the table who wasn't there that day. She had done some embarrassing things, and it slowly became apparent that she had done these things with almost every guy at the table. The guy's eyes popped with amazement as they realized that they had all been duped by her behavior and what an act she had put on for all of them. Amazement turned to laughter, and laughter turned to disgust. A week later, she confronted me, and I admitted that, yes, I was indeed at the table, but it was not me. It was those guys who were talking about you. But you listened, she said. How could I not? Those morons were talking at the top of their lungs. But you didn't walk away. I was eating my lunch. You didn't defend me. Well, that would have been kind of difficult because what you did was really kind of stupid. Maybe so. But they said, you laughed right along with them. You laughed. What do you say to that? What do you say in particular to someone with whom you hope to remain friends? There were all kinds of misbehaviors going on with just about everybody in this scenario. What do you do with that? And the further the group and each individual traveled down this path, the more difficult it was to get off that path and get on a good path. It is why we Christians get together every single Sunday without fail to think about these things and work at setting the world and more importantly ourselves aright. Because it's not natural, it is not human to act in this way by anybody in that story. We cannot say, well, I'm only human. This is an absurd statement and a cop-out. If it was truly being human, then it would not be wrong. I remember once being a very young kid, and I was visiting my sister in upstate New York, and I went outside and there was a cat, and the cat had got a chipmunk under its control, and it would just kind of sit there, and the chipmunk would start to run away, and the cat would swipe at it and bring it back, and then just sit there. And when it tried to run away again, it would swipe at it and get it back. And I, I didn't understand these things. I was very upset. So I went up to the cat and tried to shoo the cat away. And I ran inside crying. Can you believe that the cat did this? But you know, as gross and bloody as that might have been, the cat was not sinning. It was following the nature of being a cat. When we sin, 
We are not following the nature of what it is to be human. We are being inhuman. And being inhuman for a human is what we classify as sin or evil. Evil is what brings division and harm physically, mentally, spiritually into the world. And it isn't always obvious. We sin because we are trying for a good. Nobody does evil just for the sake of doing evil. And it seems this evil path often seems the best and quickest way to obtain the good. If all sin was simply sticking a needle in your eye, none of us would do it. But sin gives the appearance of goodness, of hope, of happiness. But in the long run, it is not sustainable. While that which is good gives life and sustains us to eternity, which we call heaven, that which is evil ekes away life, giving something that may seem pleasant but contains only empty promises. Now the Genesis account today gives us a brilliant insight into the nature of sin in just a few sentences. Now bear in mind, just prior to where we come in today, God and man walked in harmony in the garden and in a moment, with one bite of the forbidden fruit, all that changes. Since that one sin shatters everything. We pick up when God comes into the garden looking for Adam and he asks, where are you? As if he didn't know where and he didn't know why. Adam responds, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So immediately, right there, there's a bit of a defensive mode. It's really kind of your fault, God. You scared me. I was naked, so I hid myself. All of a sudden, between these two who were so incredibly close, there is on Adam's part fear, shame, defensiveness. Everything, says Dr. Scott Hahn, except contrition. Jordan Peterson speculates on the importance of Adam and Eve hiding themselves for being naked. Because moments ago, there was no shame in it. We would have read earlier in Genesis, they were naked without shame. So what is this knowledge of good and evil? The hiding was first the acknowledgement of, oh, I'm vulnerable. I can be hurt. I can be used. And the second thing that they realize is even worse. I can hurt others. I can use others. The body is not dirty or shameful. It is the power of harm we have over each other that causes us to cover up. As Christopher West wrote, it's why in a fallen world fig leaves are necessary. Then God asks another simple question to which he already knows the answer. Who told you that you were naked? Adam does not respond, so God supplies the answer. So you ate of the fruit. And finally here we see how virtuous and manly Adam is. It was the woman. But it wasn't enough to blame her. The shame of the truth was so great that he had to throw some of it back on God. It was the woman whom you put here with me. Ouch. And his shame was more than just partaking in the fruit. Remember, earlier on, he was charged with protecting the garden. 
And he was there the whole time with Eve as the snake slithers into the garden and then starts talking to his helpmate, his other self. And he does nothing, even when it appears as though Satan is going to win her over to sin. There is the failure in love and duty. So then God asks his third question, to which he already knows the answer. He asks Eve, why did you do such a thing? And the reason he's asking all these questions is the same reason you might have asked your children the same or similar questions. Who made this mess? Did you eat those cookies? Where did you get that? The answer is no, but we want to give them the chance to be stand-up people. Give them the chance to be the type of person who takes ownership of their actions, not making excuses, not pawning it off on others, and then is brave and humble enough to ask pardon. So, okay, Eve, why did you do such a thing? It was the serpent who tricked me into it, so I ate it. Not really my fault. Division, diversion, fear, shame, defensiveness, justification, self-preservation, evasiveness, self-engrandizement, dark knowledge. This is not the recipe for good or happy or free living. So why do we fuss around so much about good and evil? Why do we get together every single solitary Sunday to discuss these things over and over and over again? Because a life of even tiny sins is more destructive in that we, than we think, and it is ultimately untenable. Though it may at first, even, and maybe even for a long time, look good, taste good, feel good, sound good, it ultimately begins to point towards death. And we call that hell. And why, why even take little sips of poison, even if it won't kill you? We see this played out many years later in Jesus' time. Here's the source of all goodness, beauty, truth, healing, and life, of spiritual, mental, and physical health, walking with man on earth. And like Adam, we could not bear to be the before the light in our sinfulness. So instead of looking inward and contemplating, oh, maybe I should change, maybe I should be more like Jesus, it was easier to demonize him because then that gave them the ability to ignore him and do as they wished. And our times are no different. Make the church and what she stands for seem evil, and then we have the license to act in any fashion we wish. The cure for this is being brave enough to have the humility to look at our own lives and own up to what is not bringing beauty and truth and goodness into the world. And then having enough humility to be brave enough to change that. Like that situation at the University of Akron, what I had control over was myself. I could have begun the breaking of the cycle of sin. I could have become a better person and start that community on a better path. It didn't matter what the other ones did. I could have been a better man. And for all of us, this process starts right here, right now. I hope a seed is planted in your heart at this Mass. Nourish it with the strength that we get from Christ in the Eucharist. Let it grow throughout the whole week in prayer and contemplation and action and change. And then bring it back 
next week and the next week and the next week so it takes root more deeply to be fed again and then help plant the next seed.